Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Nikos Fakis, who is a professor for English for Specific Purposes at the University of Athens. Very nice to speak to you today, Dr. Fakis. Hello, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. So, the topic that we're generally going to be speaking about today is English as a lingua franca, which is how I first learned about your work. And so, the, the first question that I would like to ask you in relation to this uh, is, in the work that you have, you note the importance of recognizing the situations that English as a lingua franca is used. So, as someone who uses English as a second language, English as a lingua franca, how do you find yourself using it in general use? It's an interesting question. Perhaps you'd like me to start by trying to define English as a lingua franca for those who don't really understand the meaning of the, of the term, uh, yeah, briefly. That, that, that would be fine. Uh, we've, we've had uh, people on the podcast in the past who have spoken about English as a lingua franca. I mean, uh, people who you probably know, uh, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins, who has uh, defined the, the background of it. But uh, I think maybe, yeah, if we can define it uh, in how you're using it, yes, that would be an interesting way to start this. Great, yes. Well, there have been, um, I'm saying this because there have been um, a number of different definitions, all of them related, of the term English as a lingua franca, uh, that go back uh, at least to 25, if not more years. And, and the term changes as research change changes and as times change. Uh, so the way I see uh, English as lingua franca, to put it simply, is just um, as completely funct functionally. So uh, ELF for me is uh, defined by its use in, in intercultural communication uh, rather than something that can be formally defined by its reference to a native speaker kind of norm. So this doesn't mean that it involves only so-called non-native speakers or users. It definitely involves native speaker users as well. Uh, but uh, the definition of the term English as lingua franca is, is uh, a functional definition. Um, we could go at length uh, further describing it, but to keep it simple, that's how I see it. I'm based in, in Greece. Um, it's, it would be important for me to say that Greece e belongs to the so-called expanding circle. That is, uh, yes, we are a country that is part of uh, the European Union, but we've never had in Greece any historical link with, uh, with English, with the language, its people, or anything like that, historical. Uh, as we know, there are different parts of the world uh, were, uh, uh, that had uh, uh, very close links with, uh, with English um, through the colonial times. Uh, but Greece is not a, a country that has these links. Um, however, as part of the expanding circle and living in, in modern times, in English plays a very major role in Greece as it does in, Europe, in the European Union. So the the role of English in Greece is um, is is not not related with the state. Mm -hmm. We learn English as a foreign language and we use it to to some degree 
um, at school. We learn it at school as a foreign language. But beyond school, even younger learners uh, use English outside of school. Mm-hmm. When they play games, and this starts, as you can understand, very early, um, all, all major games, all games, uh, I think, are in English. So they play uh, uh, games using English as users of the game and also as gamers. When they go online, and these days gaming is an online uh, thing, mm. you know, they communicate with other users all around the world through English. The English that they use is not the English that they learn at school. It's the English they have to use to be understood. Uh, that's the functional character of Elf. So uh, um, learners and users of English in Greece learn to how to use the language, the English language, from a very young age. And uh, they also learn to distinguish it from the language they learn at school, mm. which is the statutory, the, the, the native speaker English that everybody learns uh, as a foreign language. Okay. And this is... Sorry, yes? That there's so much you've uh, highlighted there as English as a foreign language in a country like Greece. What is it that you use English for on a regular basis? And in terms of your connection with ELF, how is it that, that, that this, this approach to it, how is it uh, affected and improved and uh, your connection to language and your academic work? Yeah, well, personally, if, if you ask me personally, I use English all the time. Uh, I read uh, in English all the, all the bibliography, all the books and the literature for my, for my work. I teach in English. All teaching takes place in English in my university, in my department. It's the, an English department. So, um, but my, my connection with English is not a typical connection of, an aver- of, of the average Greek uh, person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I go to conferences, I publish articles, I've written uh, books and I've edited books. So I'm, I'm quite uh, familiar with, uh, with using English. And I, I quite like using English. In fact, I studied in England um, my first degree and my PhD. So I'm quite familiar and, and happy to use the language. In your connection with English, and as you say, you've uh, studied in England at that time. Can I just, uh, where did you have your first degree? Essex University. My first degree is in computational linguistics. It's very interesting. My wife had her first degree in the University of Essex as well. All um, right. But Great. Has your approach to ELF or your idea about English as a lingua franca or English as a global language changed throughout your term of using English for these purposes that you've outlined? Definitely, definitely. As I said, I studied in England and since uh, before I went to England to study, I went there uh, when I was 18. Before that, uh, uh, I learned English at school. So my... um, um, relationship with the language was a relationship with the English people. In my mind, I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, 80s. I was an adolescent in the, in the 1980s. Uh, for me, you know, I, I loved England. I loved England. I wanted to travel to England, um, see, you know, uh, everything I, 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 was, I was taught, like all the stereotypical aspects of 
of the UK, you know, the London, the Big Ben, the Parliament, Shakespeare's the, the, birthplace. The fantastic food. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the fantastic um, ethnic food, yes, as, oh, I, sure. as I found out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And when I started to teach, I because, I, I, as I said, I studied uh, computational linguistics, which is a, a very theoretical linguistic orientation, as you know. And then my PhD was in linguistics again, in, in phonology and phonetics. Coming back from the UK in the, in the uh, mid-1990s, I started to teach. And my approach to teaching was the traditional, typical uh, approach to uh, teaching the native speaker English. Uh, not just the native speaker, but the, you know, the southern Eng English uh, varieties. Uh, that were taught through the, the the textbooks that we used and we still use. Um, another thing I have to say is the the predominance in a country like Greece of uh, high stakes examinations. Uh, there's there's a huge everybody in Greece from a very young age needs to get a certificate uh, of proficiency starting from the B2 level, the lower as we call it, and then moving on to the advanced and the um, and the, uh, the 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 C two level, um, and this is part of of our life. In right, fact, the it, first just just, yeah. a, just to cut in here, just to make sure, because not everyone uh, who listens to our podcast is uh, a linguist. So we're talking about the the SAFA, the uh, the Common European Framework of Reference for European Language and Assessment, of, of with the three levels starting from. Uh, from level from from A1, A2, the basic level, and then moving on to more advanced levels. So and, and that, for our listeners in in Japan, A2 is basically where you'd get to in high school. Uh, B2 is where you'd want to get from the end of university. But from the Common European Frame of of Reference in other European uh, in other European countries, they would prefer that you gain a higher level before you graduate from high school before you go to university and and the highest level i believe is i think c2 right that's right that's right in in greece getting the c2 is actually one of the first if not the first um examination experience experience from a formal examination that uh, any student has before they go on to further exams in their lives, that's the first experience. So it's, it, it serves as a rite of passage. You have to go through this. It's so important. And everybody well, then, has to do it. Well, then, Dana, can, can I ask you, in relation to that, because I think you're probably uniquely able, uh, of people who we've uh, interviewed on this podcast, in terms of your connection to ELF and the SEFA, how connected are they? Do you think the people who have a C2 rating on the SEFA are ELF qualified? Absolutely. Everybody is ELF qualified. If I understand the term uh, ELF qualified, and, uh, actually the, this, um, characterizing communication in English in terms of levels that have been defined with reference to native speaker norms is, is not something that we, we accept, if you like, in, in, in the ELF community. So anybody, I mentioned uh, earlier, younger learners, younger users of English, who do not have even the A1 or A2, they would be at that level, but they, they don't have the certificate mm -hmm. of, of um, 
let's say, B1, they can still communicate. And it's great they, they, they can communicate. The problem is that um, they can communicate in, in real life when, when they play games or whatever. But then when they go to school, schooling focuses on what they lack, the, what they are deficient in. And they have to learn the grammar and so on. Uh, and this is fine. Uh, and so far, uh, uh, but but it 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 uh, it doesn't really um, help them grow as elf users. The notion of being an elf user is shunned, is is looked down on uh, in traditional schooling, at least in Greece, and as far as I know, in in other places. Although this. This changes. There's a there's a rapid change of um, attitudes from different stakeholders in 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 the, the, the communities of uh, formal education in different countries, and that's great. But it takes time, and we should be thankful to the uh, elf community of scholars, researchers, and uh, interested teachers who are willing to learn more about this. Thing that we call English as lingua franca and how it can help us prompt um, the elf identity in our learners, which is really important. In in relation to this, I mean, I have often talked about things like uh, the three circles model being a deficiency model that models deficiency from a required native uh, speaker standard that is not something that catch through suggested but ha it, it's how it has been applied afterwards when you're teaching english or when you're uh, uh, i mean you are a prof professor of english for specific purposes how do you approach the necessities of the students who may think that they want to achieve uh, a standard that is first of all not achievable but also not necessarily that's a very good point, and it's uh, actually quite difficult to achieve. First of all, you have to, um, we have to understand that our learners are very different. Not everybody goes to school uh, to learn the same thing. Um, when we talk about English for specific purposes, we are really talking about teaching adults. So uh, um, these ESP situations are situations that uh, are beyond and after uh, schooling. The, some of these situations could be formal educational situations like teaching uh, English for academic purposes at university, but uh, this is not uh, the... Um, there are many, many other possibilities, teaching uh, businessmen, teaching uh, uh, professionals who work in many different areas and they need the language. Now, when you talk to to, to um, in general, to adults who come to you to be taught English, they usually come to you with an agenda. This agenda is, more often than not, defined by a sponsor. Somebody sends them to, to learn English. And this could be a company, their company. It could be um, um, even, even them, themselves. They, they believe, we have this in Greece quite a lot, uh, people who are in the 40s and 50s decide that they need to upgrade their English uh, and they would come to you and say to you that, you know, I, I want to get that certificate because that's what they know from their earlier experience. Um, so 
what we should be doing really is get that information from the learners and from the companies and try to um, find a way to connect it, link it somehow with uh, the English as a lingua franca principles. That's not always possible and it's not even desirable. But uh, many times it, it can be done. It's still, I would say, early days because ELF um, is a growing thing. It, it continues to grow, but it, we still have a long way to go before we, we get learners who would come to us saying that I want you to teach me how to be an ELF, a successful and efficient ELF user. We don't see this. Um, that's why my perspective in, in uh, working with ELF personally in my, in my uh, academic kind of uh, endeavors is to try to find a way to incorporate or integrate English as a lingua franca issues, practices, and so on in traditional ELT contexts. So when you have a context that, that is what we would call traditional, by traditional I mean a context that takes a native speaker as uh, the target, as the only um, desirable norm. So you have to deal with uh, a, a norm, you're dealing with a particular textbook that uses native speaker issues, culture, the grammar, everything is native speaker or oriented. So my, my attempt, and others of course, is to find ways to incorporate what I personally call elf awareness in these typical traditional settings. The paper that we're actually uh, discussing is Elf Awareness in English Language Teaching Principles and Processes. And we've kind of jumped into the, the, the contents of it um, quite uh, vigorously from the beginning. I would like to just take one step back from the, uh, the issue of Elf, ELF, English as a Lingua Franca, and ask you a question that I asked to uh, Dr. Martin from the Philippines when we spoke about her paper on Philippine English and when she outlined all the different types of acronyms that were related to this, such as World English, as Global English, as English as a Lingua Franca, English as an International Language. Um, do you think the field itself, in terms of WE, GE, uh, EIL, ELF, uh, LFE, is it becoming too fragmented or do you think that this fragmentation is kind of assisting with uh, getting to the, the the roots of the issues that can assist language learners? Yes, there are definitely different fields of study that have developed over time, but I think that they've developed for a reason. I see their development from, uh, or at least I try to see the development of these uh, different uh, acronyms from an epistemological uh, point of view. That is, um, scholars putting the focus on a specific aspect. So they are uh, not all the same. We have all the proliferation of terms, but they, they refer to uh, different things. For example, um, and, and the terms are not all, all of them, historically linked with ELT pedagogy. For example, word English, and the term World English and World Englishes sprung after the Second World War from the domain of world literature. And more and more authors um, writing superb novels, we have even Nobel laureates uh, in English. 
um, and this goes back before ELF or international uh, English developed. We have uh, Chino Achebe, the Nigerian, a very well-known Nigerian, um, Nigerian native. Um, and even more recently, there are more, uh, quite a lot of um, novelists who decide to write in English, even though they come from a different country. We have uh, examples like Elif Safak from, uh, from Turkey and others. As far as ELF is concerned, I would say that the closest term to English as a lingua franca uh, would be English as an international language. But even there, the um, EIL scholars see EIL as an umbrella term and uh, as a broader term underneath which they would place ELF and other so-called varieties. Uh, so of what, world so English. What, what else would be under EIL? Global English or World English and different different local varieties. Mm-hmm. Uh, EIL would incorporate, I think, more um, World English varieties than ELF. ELF is uh, um, completely to do with uh, the the non-native uh, involvement in interactions in English. So uh, ELF, I mean, and I spoke about with this with uh, Dr. Uh, Jenkins, she spoke about it being as uh, a function. It's not something, it's not a form. You can't point down what is ELF in terms of the, the grammar, the lexus. It, it, is a, it is a function. It's what happens in a context. Do you think that this umbrella term of English as an international language is kind of replacing the former model of the inner circle, outer circle, expanding circle, that English as an international language is the umbrella term? under which ELF is one part of it? It definitely is the umbrella term. At the same time, we see that uh, uh, Katru's models, the concentric circle uh, model, is not going away. Everybody's using it. Uh, Now we use it in a a kind of simplistic way, um, and it has many problems. I've also written about the problems because... um, well, as we know, Kakru developed the term again with reference to literature, right. and uh, and progressively uh, we everybody saw the opportunity um, of looking at the uses of English from a geographical perspective, but soon we realized that we can't do that because you know uh, we have people who are. Um, native speaker uh, whose whose parents are native speakers of English who were born in Greece. They speak English at home and then Greek everywhere else. They, they are bilingual. And everybody these days is multilingual. So it's really difficult to use Kakru's uh, model um, in, a, in a real kind of way, other than just refer to it um, as a geographical, geographical and historical orientation of of the spread of English. Well, I I always uh, refer to it and uh, have referred to it with my uh, research partner Aaron Hahn as being like a linguistic shorthand that anyone who's been through applied linguistics at some point has heard about Catru's three circles, and so you kind of have to throw it in at some point when you're doing a linguistic paper, but it's not necessarily relevant to all linguistic uh, situations. It, it's kind of used as a, as a catch-all if you don't really need to, you know, apply any linguistic basics basis to it. 
within the same paper where we have the uh the non the non-providing the non-developing right. and the non-dependent varieties of english so even within the same paper that people often misapply widely there are other terms that can be used for the use of english as an international language how do you think the work that you do assists with this kind of development of english as an international language disconnected from the native speaker english varieties when i started working in in this field i started with uh, when eil uh, really was the only available term or uh, generally available uh, and then progressively in the mid 2000s the term elf emerged and we had the first uh, international conferences of english as a lingua franca the first one was in 2007 in helsinki and ever since we've been having one every year and these conferences you know they uh, attract uh, a lot of researchers and teachers who are interested and many many scholars brilliant scholars like jennifer and barbara uh, and anna maranen and others of course uh, and that's how i i kind of grew up uh, in this new field and 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 was i was really part of the development uh, of of the field and i tried to do my best there my uh, interest from the very early days of my involvement has been the transferring of the research and know-how developed by elf discourse analysis to the english language teaching domain predominantly uh, starting with teacher education uh, my paper in 2007 uh, in uh, international journal of applied linguistics and then moving on um, slowly but steadily to uh, pedagogy uh, I think I was uh, I was probably among the first, if not the first, uh, elf scholar to attempt the link, uh, link elf research with the classroom. Uh, actually, my whole attempt until today, and hopefully in the future, is first and foremost to develop a comprehensive meta theory, a, a ground on which that that could provide an adequate basis for developing a pedagogy that would allow this integration integrating elf in elt the problem as you as you said is that uh, elf is not a, a language it's not a variety it's not as i say it's not a thing it's it's uh, uh, it's a function it's a way it's a way of communicating mm. um and i was really lucky because i found that uh, that uh, meta theoretical framework in the work of Jack Mezirow, who is um, an expert, who was an expert, he's now deceased, uh, in adult education in uh, in the United States, um, um, and and it developed a theory of transformative education and transformative learning. Uh, so, in in his theory, uh, transformative learning for me offers the best and most suitable tools for dealing with. The major obstacle, uh, or uh, what I call the elephant in in the in the room when we're dealing with uh, ELT context and elf, and that is our attitudes. There are very strong attitudes concerning elf. Uh, now these attitudes spring from deeper perspectives that are shaped from intuition and experience, but not just experience. 
Um, and these intuitions, these perspectives prioritize everywhere and anytime native speaker norms. We see this, it's been established for many, many years that this is the case. There's, um, there's a predominant negative attitude in formal educational contexts uh, well, I, I, the, I, I, against ELF. I, I completely agree with you, uh, but I, I, uh, there's a position here that we can we can talk about your development within this space, because you talked about uh, growing up from a previous space to uh, to where you are now, and uh, the works of um, uh, Jenkins and Maronin, and uh, how did you, from your initial language learning through to where you are now, can you note any points that you started to move away from the idea that native speaker standards were things that you had to work towards? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, yes, there's definitely, I started as someone, as a learner, uh, as someone who, as I said, was in love with English, uh, the language, the literature, uh, and the English people, the English culture. That's what I knew as a student. Then I went to England, and I think that my experience in England helped me a lot because as a, as a young adult, I was able to see many more people from many more many different cultures. This wasn't really the case in, in Greece in the early 1980s. That's before migration and before all the major changes that uh, we see today. Um, the, the uh, changes brought about by globalization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so my experience in the UK as a student opened my eyes to the the uh, the fact that English is not one language. I realized that English is not one language. That simplified reductionistic perspective is completely wrong. But I, I still continued, of course, because I studied linguistics, and as you know, linguistics. The Chomskyan tradition mm -hmm. um, idolizes the native speaker for its own very good reasons, and uh, but this uh, this uh, tr was transferred in in the way that I taught because when I came back, I started to teach using textbooks and and using all the the, the tools um, and trying to to um, address the needs of my learners which, as I said, were to get that certificate. All certificates, high-stakes examination certificates, are native speaker-oriented. Uh, and then I started to read. So my first kind of um, shift towards ELF, or towards opening up my, my perspective, was my experience in the UK. Mm. My second shift was through studying and reading the works of uh, Henry Widowson uh, uh, back in the mid-1990s. As we know, Widowson uh, uh, helped define communicative language teaching. And uh, after that, or together with that, the, um, the literature surrounding identity. Mm. And uh, I started realizing that identity is really important. The differences uh, in the cultural differences uh, between the different speakers, and I started criticizing, uh, but without having the tools, I wanted to criticize textbooks, the textbooks used in Greece. Uh, 
And then uh, I started reading more and more. My focus was first, I tried to look at the globalization. And I have a couple of papers from the early uh, 2000s that do that, that, that look at uh, globalization as an aspect of um, developing uh, a broader cultural space, an intercultural space for communication uh, in English. And this brought me to uh, English as an international language. I, I realized that there is an area within academia called English as an international language. I, I, I tried to study it. Of course, back then, the literature, the EIL literature was very small right. and it quickly developed and became uh, very, very rich. And then I, uh, as I saw that ELF developed, and as I, re as I saw in, in the literature that focused on the strategies uh, that successful and efficient ELF users use in order to communicate, despite the so-called deviations from the norm, what we would call, we would perceive as errors, then I, I wanted to find a way to link these wonderful uh, data from discourse, discourse analysis from pragmatics, health pragmatics, link that with the classroom. Then let's let's take a look specifically at a couple of things that you've just raised right there in terms of ELF and it not being or uh, not looking at deficiencies, but looking at ways that you can encourage students to use their uh, language abilities in a positive way and high stakes testing because as i well after she had said many negative things about the ielts test i had to admit to jennifer jenkins that i am an ielts uh speaking examiner i i'm very very interested in the idea of linking the understanding of uh, english as a lingua franca to high stakes testing thinking about it in terms of english language teaching and high stakes testing where can we go from here? I'm, I'm very interested in both. That's the $50,000 question. I think it's more than $50,000. I think it's about $5 billion. <laughs> yes, probably more, more than that. <laughs> um, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, um, personally, if you, if, you, uh, if you ask me, I, I would say that um, since ELF is not a language, since ELF cannot be taught, it cannot be tested. In fact, why should we want, should anybody want to test ELF? Uh, I'm, and I'm thoroughly against the, uh, the, even the notion of assessing and testing ELF because the very idea of testing brings all the wonderful uh, tools, measurements, um, that we use in, in testing. And these tools have a, a, a very good function when we're talking about EFL and standard English. We know how to, to do that. We've, we've been doing this for decades. But with ELF, things are very different. What we can do, what, what uh, EFL, all these high-stakes exams can do, is they can learn from uh, ELF research. Now, what can they learn? I think that the, the biggest lesson from ELF research is that the non-native speaker has an identity that is very distinct from the native speaker. Now, there are at the same time, there are billions of different na non-native speaker identities. 
And that's a problem for, for EFL testing because we can't pin it down. We can't, we need ways to, uh, put a mark. So, so, so what, another thing what, we, what should we do? I, I mean, at the moment, let's just take the example of IELTS. You, they are being tested on their fluency. They're being tested on their linguistic resource, their Lexus, their vocabulary and their pronunciation. Uh, is there anything else, uh, another category that could be added that would assist in, in, you know, noting the actual uh, abilities of non-native, as, as we say, non-native speakers of English, we're going to use that as a, as a moniker. Is there anything else we should add that allows them to shine as users of English? I believe, I believe there is, and there's a lot of research to show that. Accommodation strategies. Uh, but in order to in order to um, to really bring them forward, you need in these testing um, testing contexts, you need to develop contexts of communication that are as realistic as real life elf contexts. So you need to put in the same room different uh, elf speakers and and. Uh, Give them a topic, perhaps, I don't know what this, give them something to discuss um, that you can decide and then observe what they do in order to get the meaning across, in order to have a, a, an efficient communication. Well, I actually discussed this with uh, Dr. Jenkins and I said, is there a possibility that we could come to a point where a test had artificial constraints? For example, that you have something that you have to explain, some point that you have to get across, but there are certain words or certain things you cannot use, i.e. you have to use accommodation strategies to work around that and show that given problems with uh, communication, that you have these strategies that are not available to native speakers of English, people who wouldn't know how to do it. So you, you have to explain this concept, but you can't use these five words. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that, 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 to me, that, that looks like a game, a game of communication. But language testing is in itself. Yes, a it game. is. <laughs> It, it's it's a way. It's of, a terrible game. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but if we're if we're trying to create something where people can show that they can do something without doing it the easiest way, then that would be one way of doing it. Well, uh, in elf interaction, we always use the easiest way in the sense that uh, it's the way that gets the message across uh, more directly. But as so, you say, if, if there's, if in terms of negotiation strategies, if the person you're speaking to, if both people are not native speakers of the language, and that person doesn't have that, doesn't have that lexical access, and this person does, how are you going to get to the outcome that you want? By working your way around it, by using by using other languages that are shared by translanguaging by opening up to any other possibilities and allowing everything but in order for this to happen the testing situation has to uh, accept openness and this isn't very easy it has to accept an openness as as a primordial fundamental element and part of of the entire assessment um, situation that we have to be open you can't have grids all the time 
Uh, and sometimes you have to observe, and, and in order to, to, get, to get enough information, this observing sometimes takes a long time mm -hmm. to really get the information you need. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's another mindset. It's a completely different mindset. But I think that ELT can learn from this. Mm -hmm. what, what I'm not sure is, is whether the, the clients, whether learners would be interested in this. I mean, even, even if testers are interested, and I know that many, many testers and stakeholders in testing are very interested in opening up, I'm not sure that learners, the typical learner, and I'm thinking of school, school goers and adults who need a certificate, um, that, that certificate, you know, the, the traditional C2 certificate, I'm not sure that if, if you told them that, um, these tests would be more open and they would uh, not be based um, on uh, native speaker norms so much. Perhaps they might have um, a different take to these uh, tests. They might not so, like them. So, so I think some of these tests should be kept <laughs> as, as they are. But uh, for those other tests, like IELTS, IELTS is an excellent way of... Uh, in my view, and actually, it has many of the principles of English for specific purposes. It's it's it it is a test that can become more open and and more extensive. You know, allow for more interaction and more uh, time to observe. So, as we come towards the end of the interview, let's think more openly. Let's think you and I. If we were in charge of uh, operating a test for people who wanted to get to C2, but we wanted to promote the idea of it not being a native speaker standard. How, how could we do it? What would be the way to promote it? How, how could we reach out to, to promote this idea that English is a tool for international communication? It's not just about going to live in the UK or the US or Canada or somewhere like that. I think the way the way to start is not from generic testing, from these broad high-stakes exams like Cambridge exams or whatever. The way to start is from the more specific um, testing situations like uh, testing business English competence, for example. Now, in those testing situations, you could do much, much more because you would have a very specific context, the communica communicative context of a business um, where negotiation and therefore accommodation would be part, an uh, integral part of the test. And, and in, in those cases, mistakes or deviations from the norm could be allowed. Mm -hmm. At start from those tests uh, that are in the periphery, Rather than uh, the the major the major the big tests um, uh, you know high stakes exams that everybody would like everybody everybody tries uh, I don't see that my my uh, younger learners or adolescent learners would be really interested in um, uh, in, in in sitting a test that has a lot of elf in it if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, but they the might, they might. 
The paper we've been discussing is Elf Awareness in English Language Teaching Principles and Processes. And I strongly recommend anyone who has an interest in English as a lingua franca to go and take a look at it because it has so much rich detail breaking down all of the general ways of uh, thinking about English, not just as a lingua franca, but also uh, breaking down some of the the, the barriers that we've spoken about in today's uh, interview, and and uh, the quote that I want to take away from this, and then and then speak a little bit more as we finish the interview, is that elf is not a thing; it is a way. And how are you taking that forward in your current research? What, what's the next stage? Where are you going with this? So, so elf is not a language. It's not a thing. You can't study. Uh, if you try to study, well, we did. We did try to study it for for about fifteen years, and we realized that you. It's not enough to study just the surface of what we say. You have to look underneath the surface and look at what we do, uh, the strategies, accommodation skills, what exactly goes on in this interaction every time that we use English. Um, so. It's a way, it's not a thing. By way, um, the focus is on the function. The focus is on identity. The focus is on interculturality. And the focus when we're dealing with, um, at least for me, when we're dealing with the classroom is focusing and changing attitudes uh, of every, every single stakeholder. The teacher, the learner, their parents, textbook designers, uh, curriculum uh, planners. Everybody should should engage in some form of critical reflection, and critical reflection is paramount. Um, and I'd like to um, distinguish critical reflection, which is a very deep personal process that is painful <laughs> uh, or can be painful. Distinguish it from logical thinking. Logical thinking does not get you too far. Um, it can help you prove anything if you are just being logical. But thinking critically and reflecting critically, uh, what you have to do is really bring to the fore your deeper perspectives um, that you may not be aware of about language. Uh, so there are many people who subscribe to a native speakerist um uh, uh, concern in teaching without being uh, racist, without being ethnocentric. They just believe, as I did when I was younger, that, you know, English is the language of the native, belongs to the native speaker. That native speakerist perspective, and, and we have many teachers and learners and uh, a whole industry that uses, that, that is based around this native speakerist predisposition needs to change. The way to change it, and this is what I'm focusing on, is we have to find ways to, uh, to um, integrate even with traditional, typical, reductionistic native speakerist ELT contexts, integrate questions Metacognitive questions, metalinguistic questions that, that invite learners to think critically. So imagine that you have a learner who is 17 years old and they, they reach, um, you know, they, they want to get that certificate, that the B2 certificate or the C2 certificate. And the textbook 
that they use is the the worst possible textbook that has the big ben at the center and uh, i don't know fish and chips or whatever the fo focuses on the uk culture what kind of questions can we add while we we actually do these activities because we can't escape doing we have to do these activities what kind of questions can we add just one or two questions that will make our learners more cognizant and more aware of the situation that elf exists well you can ask them for example whether they believe that the big ben is in fact a symbol of britishness whether they believe that today our life uh, gives us enough evidence to, to persuade even themselves who live in Greece that uh, things like that, things, uh, cultural artifacts like the Big Ben or, or whatever are uh, uh, definitive of British culture. So starting from what is British, which is within the uh, uh, an EFL textbook in the traditional sense, you can start moving away from britishness and look at you know in our case european what is european what is greek what is international and refer to the learners real life because in, in their real life it's it's definitely the case that they use some form of english that is not standard english that works that is efficient it is successful and they use it um with the purpose of communicating and and with with other people, whether it's uh, it's other other Greeks intra nationally or internationally when they go abroad or when they engage in gaming or whatever, bring this reality from outside the classroom in the classroom. And I've been working on on um, integrating activities that are metacognitive, focusing on um, reflecting about our predispositions. And metalinguistic, in which case you would give them examples of successful elf interaction with mistakes mm. that deviate from the norm and invite them to think about why these mistakes are there and what makes them successful in this particular context. Why make these mistakes? I think you've given me and our listeners a lot to think about at that point. And I think there's, 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 a, there's a lot that we can... <laughs> actually investigate um i think there's a there's a lot to go over we've, we've been speaking today with uh dr nikos savakis from the university of athens the paper we've been discussing is elf awareness in english language teaching principles and processes and i would like to say thank you very much for your time today uh dr savakis and you have an open invitation to come back because i think there's a lot more for us to discuss Thank you very much for having me, Chris. I'd love to come back. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. 
Thank you very much.